Well, I thought, um, since Phil had said that an unusual position is in front of me, whereby some of you may actually have read the paper, um, this is something that's very unusual when I'm talking to my students, but uh, given that, I thought what I'd like to do today is sort of talk around the arguments in the paper a bit, uh, without reading from it as such in the traditional stuff, the academic fashion. So um, that said, I have, on the other hand, um, managed to put together about 20 odd very dense slides, so I may not get through them all. So what I thought I'd do to start off with is just tell you basically how I came to be interested in this particular question. Principally, when I first started looking at indigenous issues in Australia, it was, um, I should say, in a confessional fashion. Um, it started out, shall I say, because I was sort of backpacking around Australia in my early 20s doing the traditional sort of British bungee jumping backpacking experience uh, with no other real intention beyond that. And I was in Alice Springs and I saw some um, treatment of indigenous people there that I hadn't seen the like of in apartheid South Africa. And I was instantly struck by, you know, how could this happen in a, in a liberal democracy like Australia? And that sort of sparked my, my first interest in indigenous issues. I then went back and did an MA in human rights in Essex and became interested in sort of political theory and that's where I first came across the concept of genocide in a sort of academic sense. Um, and then I eventually went to do a PhD and looked at reconciliation in Australia. And when um, I was probably about three or four months into the project, indigenous peoples that I met started to use the word genocide to describe their current experiences. And I remember thinking, uh, thinking back to my old uh, professor Michael Freeman's comments about what he called conceptual overstretch. You must be very wary about this. Um, I remember thinking, I'm not so sure it is conceptual overstretch um, as such. And I thought, right, once I've finished this project, at some point I'd like to get into looking at the concept of genocide. But looking at it, not in terms of the sort of popular understandings, but looking at it in terms of the writing of the guy, Raphael Lemkin, who uh, coined the term, sort of Polish jurist, and looking at his original writings. Now that's where I sort of um, start off today. Principally because a, a friend of mine, Dirk Moses, has been working on this for a long time, looking at Lemkin's unpublished work, which shed even uh, more interesting light on the concept of genocide, and I think served to divorce it from the popular understanding, which in many respects is synonymous with mass killing. So we'll be looking at that in a, and problematizing that dimension. Um, so I'll start then by looking at Lenkin's idea of genocide, what he was interested in, and specifically his interest in the link with colonisation, which is really under-discussed in genocide scholarship, although there are a number of really important works that have come out in the last few years. So, okay, Lenkin. Now, his first sort of major piece of published work on genocide is found in Axis Ruling Occupied Europe in the book, and it's basically a chapter. But there, he emphasises these two important phases, as he said, of genocide. So first of all, the destruction of the national pattern of the oppressed group, and then the imposition of the national pattern of the oppressor. This imposition, he says, may be made upon the oppressed population, which is allowed to remain on the territory alone after removal of the population and the colonisation of the area by the oppressor's own nationals. He then looked at uh, this notion of culture, which is really under-discussed in um, what well, has been for a long time. It's now becoming um, an area of interest for a number of scholars, as I said, Dirk Moses is one of them. Uh, this notion of culture uh, to the question of genocide. Now, Lemkin was particularly interested in the relationship between the individual and cultural identity. 
and he thought that the so-called derived needs, he says, are just as necessary to their existence as the basic physiological needs. These needs find expression in the social institutions, or, to use an anthropological term, he said, the culture ethos. If the culture of a group is violently undermined, the group itself disintegrates, and its members must either become absorbed in other cultures, which is a wasteful and painful process, or succumb to a personal disorganization and perhaps physical destruction. That's the destruction of cultural symbols is genocide. Now, if you just think about that in terms of um, popular understandings of genocide and other pills. Uh, friends and adversaries, Lars Waldorf, often says to me, you know, you must be mad thinking about stolen children in terms of genocide. And I often say to him, well, actually, no, I think you just need to go read your Lempian a bit more. Um, but that's another debate. So it's important then to think about how far this is from more popular understandings of genocide. Lemkin then writes um, in more detail on the notion of uh, culture and its importance to genocide when he says, the world represents only so much culture and intellectual vigour as are created by its component national groups. And he's particularly interested in um, national groups and in many respects it was the destruction of a nation that he was most concerned with when he coined the term genocide. And it's principally because he was concerned to avoid this loss of future contributions to the world. When you look at his unpublished work, this is what he was most worried about. This is the, the, the life that he wanted to protect when coining the term genocide. And if you look, um, as I've done, at the unpublished work in Geneva, in the run-up to the genocide convention being passed, um, that comes out even more strongly. This notion of a loss of future contributions to the world that results when cultures are destroyed. So much so that um, genocide, for, for Lemkin, cultural genocide, he said, was the most important part of the convention. Now, given that it isn't actually in the ultimate convention, that's a fairly astonishing claim. I was amazed when I first read this, but he then, in, his, uh, in the unpublished uh, autobiography, Totally Un Unofficial Man, Lemkin said, I defended this notion of cultural genocide successfully through two drafts of the convention. It meant for him the destruction of a cultural pattern of a group, such as the language, traditions, monuments, archives, libraries, churches. In brief, the shrines of the soul of a nation. But there was not enough support for this idea in the committee, so with a heavy heart, I decided not to press for it. He had a drop, in his words, in an idea that was very dear to me. Now, he doesn't give a particularly um, acute political uh, analysis to the reason why it was dropped, but... Other scholars, um, Cooper in particular, has talked about the way in which the construction of the convention at the UN level was um, a very political process, obviously, and ultimately this notion of cultural genocide came up, came up to uh, up against some serious opposition from those countries that had not um, decolonized sufficiently, and they were particularly worried about it. And ultimately, it then did not end up in the final convention. And yet, for Lemkin, cultural destruction was unquestionably a method of genocidal practice. Not necessarily a form of genocide, but in other words, he thought that a group could be destroyed simply by undermining its culture. Physical killing was not required as such. Group destruction necessarily involved suppressing and often obliterating a culture for Lemkin. He wrote, Disintegration of the political and social institutions of culture, language, national feelings, religion, and the economic existence of national groups, and the destruction of the personal security, liberty, health, and dignity. 
He also, as I mentioned earlier, made a crucial connection with colonization, this notion of supplanting uh, of culture. So the second stage of genocide for him, the imposition of the national pattern of the oppressor. Now there's two authors in particular who've looked um, at Lemkin's unpublished work and specifically focused on the connection with colonization, um, which is relatively still uh, under-discussed in genocide literature. And Kirthon has looked at his work um, on Australia, whereby the deaths of indigenous people, she suggested, um, were to be seen in Lemkin's work as a function of colonization rather than a specific intent to destroy the group as such. John Docker argued further that colonization in this, in this sense is inherently uh, colonial. Uh, colonization, sorry, is inherently genocidal. So, in many respects, when the settlers could see that their intention was to take over the land, and that meant death for most indigenous peoples, more often by disease and despair, um, some authors that have taken Kerthos and Docker's work and suggested that basically what you're looking at there is ultimately an intent because they knew the repercussions of what they were doing. And I won't go into that any further. I mean, I technically uh, take the view that um, in many respects the notion of intent to destroy is one that will be continually debated. Um, and I like to focus more, more on the effects of, on the victims as such, because that's where my interest came from. Tony Barter then sidesteps the issue of intent to an extent and comes up with this notion of relations of genocide. Now, Barter was basically focusing on Australia, but he was also someone who was very interested in Lemkin's um, connection between colonisation and genocide. Now, in uh, a groundbreaking essay, he came out with this um, very uh, forceful and important quote. The violence that accompanied the huge land grab is of settler colonisation in Australia was of a scale and ruthlessness largely unchecked by the colonial authorities, which left little doubt in the minds of either the perpetrators or victims as to the fate of those who resisted the inevitable course of events. It can be of no coincidence that it was accompanied, among those with no thought of murder on their minds, by much talk about the inevitable dying out of indigenous peoples. For Barter, then, it's not too simplistic to see in this dominant opinion the most comfortable ideological reflection of a relationship which could only be recognised in good conscience for what it was, a relationship of genocide. So Barter has um, a sort of structural take on it, as he would coming from a, a Marxist tradition, um, whereby he wasn't particularly interested in trying to prove genocidal intent, and he was much more interested in the relationship between the settlers and indigenous peoples, which he then saw as a relationship of genocide. Now, a number of other scholars have taken up this notion um, of a relationship of genocide as such, and have focused specifically on the role of land within this question, principally because land is of vital importance to many indigenous groups. As Patrick Wolfe observed, land is life, or at least land is necessary for life. Contests for land can be, indeed often are, contests for life. Wolfe draws attention to the primary motive for uh, this elimination. It was not, as is the case with a number of other genocides, based on race or religion or ethnicity or grade of civilization, etc., but access to territory. For Wolfe, then, territoriality is settler colonialism's specific irreducible element. As Deborah Bird Rose points out, to get in the way of settler colonization, all the native has to do is stay at home. Uh, Norbert Finch takes this, um, as I said, into the Docker realm where he talks about imperialism and uh, colonisation as inherently genocidal, where the invading group quite literally supplants the indigenous population on its own land base. 
So, um, to sum up the connection then between cultural genocide as genocide and the situation of indigenous peoples who use the term to describe uh, the cultural destruction that they feel is happening today, the logic is based on these criteria. First of all, if the cultural life of the group is what makes it dis distinct, is the essence of the group as such, its destruction destroys the, uh, destroys the group's specific identity, if not its physical existence. Such the group is no longer the distinct entity it once was. The group is destroyed in part then, thus making it genocide. So this is the logic which, there's no question in my mind, Lemkin um, took to the question of genocide and indigenous peoples. He actually wrote chapters on this question. It's not, in Michael Freeman's terms, a conceptual <coughs> stretch at all. Lemkin was directly concerned with this question. Okay, it wasn't the question that initially uh, brought genocide to mind for him, but in his subsequent work, for a very large project, which is going to be his sort of magnum opus, this history of genocide, he had a number of chapters dealing with genocides of indigenous peoples. So what I was particularly interested in when coming to look at um, Lemkin's unpublished work was whether the use of the term genocide in contemporary Australia was um, basically accurate. So there are a number of indigenous peoples who I talked to over the years that use the word genocide and engage with the debates about the stolen generations. I'm sure you all heard about the stolen generations. Now, that is far less problematic because the stolen generations falls basically under the genocide convention as it currently stands. The removal of children um, is part of the genocide convention. That's less contentious, but what I was particularly interested in were those indigenous groups who were using the word genocide to describe their current uh, circumstances. And those circumstances were principally focused on dispossession. So for them, dispossession was not um, an issue of historic injustice. And this is something that isn't drawn attention to much in, in uh, writing on Australia. Dispossession is currently continuing. Uh, the, the interpretation that I've got in the paper and in my previous work where indigenous rights are constructed, as I'll show you in a minute, largely by powerful commercial interests and lobby groups such that they function in a dispossession um, in, a, in a way which continues um, dispossession. And it was that dispossession that's at the heart of many of the claims of genocide currently in Australia, along with a number of other policies. So I'll come to those in a minute. But basically, Larissa Barron is someone who, um, I, when I met in Australia, she was always using the term genocide. Um, and that was principally because it was due in the period of the Stolen Generations uh, Human Rights Report, which came out. But she also subscribes to the view that it's an appropriate term to use when um, describing their experience of colonization. She says, the use of the term genocide to describe the colonial experience has been met with skepticism from some quarters. Yet the political posturing and semantic debates do nothing to dispel the feeling indigenous people have this is the word that adequately describes our experience as colonized peoples. So it was in my early discussions with her that I became particularly interested, obviously looking at reconciliation through the lens of colonization, I became particularly interested in this connection with genocide, but in a contemporary sense. Up till, up till then, most of the scholars that looked at the question of genocide in Australia were focused either on the early invasion and the massacres or the stolen generations and not um, the contemporary experiences that indigenous peoples are referring to when they use the term genocide. So in many respects, for Larissa and I, and I agree, the challenge is to 
first of all, for those people who think that it isn't an appropriate term, to say when Australia was in fact decolonised, um, how that decolonisation occurred, uh, when it occurred, and um, on what terms. Um, sort of reverse the burden of proof to an extent, because it is directly related to the question of colonisation, she thinks, and, and I agree. So, um, in suggesting that this use of the term genocide is, or does equate with um, Lemkin's and is also pertinent to the question of Indigenous <coughs> people's current experiences in Australia, um, I've identified three issues here, which I think I've, I've not really gone into too much in, in the paper, I've dealt with them elsewhere, um, explain to an extent this resistance to the use of the word genocide. So firstly, a genuine lack of appreciation of the importance of land to indigenous life. Secondly, confusion over the issue of moral equivalence regarding different elements of genocide. And then thirdly, perhaps a misunderstanding of the concept itself. So I'll deal with these in turn. So, as I've mentioned, for a lot of indigenous groups, uh, land is vitally important. Now, before, well, I, I often sort of have to take a, st a, a pause here and, uh, and just clarify for, for a second, because when you do take culture seriously, you're often sort of met with sort of howls of essentialism these days. Um, but just to be clear, some indigenous groups still have strong connections to land in Australia. Not all of those people who define themselves as indigenous are necessarily wedded or connected to their land as such. You know, what it means to be indigenous varies across the board. But there are about 93 groups in Australia that have um, nonetheless maintained a traditional connection to the land um, that is sufficiently strong as to um, have been proven to the satisfaction of the Native Title Tribunal. We'll come to to that in a, in a few slides time, but suffice it to say there are nonetheless still some groups in Australia who have a traditional connection to the land more in keeping with classical um, indigenous identity claims. So um, of those they tend to articulate themselves in these terms. So for example this first quote here is an integral part of the mythology as well as being their home, hunting territory, recreational place, cathedral or temple, court of law, cemetery and place where the spirits return to after death. Lara Langley points out, without our land we are nobody. We all die out, finish, the land gives true meaning to Aboriginal life. And it's these sort of sentiments from Indigenous peoples who define themselves this way um, that I think have um, the greatest claim to be able to describe their current experiences in terms of genocide. Because this is to truly appreciate what the land means to these people as distinct peoples. So colonial dispossession of land and the destruction of the natural environment then for these groups to destroy the basis of indigenous peoples, spiritual, cultural and legal systems. So, coming on to the second point then, this notion of uh, moral commensurateness. Um, as Raymond Geiter, um, an Australian philosopher, points out, many people take the Nazi attempt to exterminate the Jews and the Gypsies as a paradigm for genocide. And I suppose that I did so when at first I reacted with irritation to the charge of genocide in Australia. And yet he then argues that it's an erroneous assumption that for all crimes to fall under the same concept, they are required to be morally commensurable. In other words, there's a radical moral difference between the murder of a hundred and a thousand, yet both are mass murder. In other words, for Gaeta, the means by which a genocidal intention is realised, either through physical killing or imposing measures to prevent births within a group and so on, may differ radically in moral seriousness, such that, for Gaeta, we are misled into believing we are confronted by different crimes. 
Whilst other people like Martin Shaw have made this point in a sort of a fairly forceful critique of this way of thinking about genocide in the book, What is Genocide? He argued, is it, is it, he asked, is it really satisfactory to equate cultural genocide with physical extermination? In a sense, making the same mistake that Gaeta was pointing out in the previous slide. Well, possibly not, but that isn't um, an accurate understanding of the broad concept of genocide, I'd argue. Just like homicide, genocide will be committed in a variety of different contexts and through a variety of different means, all of which will or may demand different levels of moral condemnation. But even this uh, issue here has been um, drawn, has been sort of problematized in conversations and interviews I've had with indigenous peoples, whereby they've said, well, you know, is this cultural uh, void that we find ourselves in necessarily worse? For us, it is a living hell. Um, so, you know, it's not obvious that um, physical death is any ne necessarily worse. And then they point out there are good reasons why people go and um, hang off power poles when trying to commit suicide, etc. So they even problematise this dimension, this uh, issue of uh, moral commensurateness when they talk about uh, genocide. And it's, the other thing that was really interesting to me was there's an awful lot of you know, fairly sophisticated knowledge of not just political theory, but you know, genocide scholarship uh, going on in a lot of uh, minds of, of a lot of indigenous peoples in Australia, actually. I mean, I was amazed when I first um, discussed some fairly important and difficult conceptual issues around multiculturalism. I found people quoting Will Kimlicker back at me and I had to sort of uh, <laughs> radically revise my, uh, my reading before going and interviewing a number of other people. Uh, anyway, okay, that's a tangential point. So, I then would argue this should not lead us to uh, fail to appreciate then that a group, at least in part, could in fact be destroyed um, if it's main identity claim was removed, in other words, in terms of its distinctiveness of a, as a group, or through direct physical destruction, or suicidal malnutrition, etc. Um, and that's where you have some aspects of this appreciation feeding into the Genocide Convention where it talks about conditions of life. Okay, in other words, you could uh, inflict conditions of life on a group um, that could lead to its ultimate destruction in whole or in part. So there are you know, elements of this that in the, in the Convention. Thirdly, then, as a consequence of destructive practices directed at these foundational elements of cultural life. Fourthly, then, or the conditions of life forced on the group, as I mentioned earlier, which don't necessarily involve physical killing directly, but they could ultimately end up with physical destruction when you take away people's means to sustain themselves. Interestingly, these, these arguments have also been put forward in different contexts as well where you know, you've had things like the sanctions regime in Iraq for example you know, there's been some suggestions that um, such policies like that could attack the foundations of life of the group in the same ways but that's a, another question now for those people who then suggest as is fairly popular an understanding of genocide that it is essentially uh, about mass killing and if you don't have mass killing then you know, it isn't genocide well as Dirk suggests this is a there's an extraordinary implication here that Lemkin did not properly understand genocide, despite the fact that he invented the term and went to great trouble to explain its meaning. Instead, most scholars presume to instruct Lemkin re retrospectively about his concept, although in fact they are proposing a different concept, usually mass murder. So this took me right back to the lectures I had with my um, <laughs> professor when I was doing my MA in human rights, where he was talking about conceptual overstretch, and I now come to the conclusion that he had a conceptual misunderstanding which was uh, rather satisfying all these years later. We've got to mark my first essay. <laughs> anyway, um, okay, this is a photo from 
one of my early field trips in Australia, which was before the official apology, um, where a pilot had gone and written this in the sky. Incidentally, this was a pilot not paid by the government. In fact, I'm sure Howard would like to have shot him down. Um, but um, the people I was walking with were all holding up um, placards about each one of the 54 recommendations of the Stolen Generations Human Rights Report, which had not been implemented by the then Howard government. And a guy who I'd had numerous discussions with, but had never talked in terms of genocide about anything, not even the Stolen Generations, um, suddenly surprised me when he saw this, and I thought, you know, I could see this look of, uh, of uh, sort of um, distaste on his face, and yet most people seemed to be quite happy in the group. And he said, ah, oh, they must have run out of petrol. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, they left off for the genocide. <laughs> you know, so I was instantly struck at that moment that actually even, even the more sort of... Um, I wouldn't say conservative, but less radical indigenous people that I interviewed were still very, very much persuaded by this use of the term genocide. And it isn't really a marginal uh, discussion point like it's portrayed, or certainly was portrayed in the media during the Stolen Generations uh, debate. Um, this is just some photographs from uh, the Tent Embassy, which is often seen as, as the radical end of indigenous politics in Australia. But um, one of my friends, uh, Andy Shah. Uh, is currently doing quite a bit of work on the TED Embassy at the moment, and um, as I found, he's finding now that it actually acts as a hub for Indigenous people from across Australia. They often come and meet and um, end up engaging in you know, consultations which the settler state um, does, or, or arms of the settler state rarely uh, does actually. So this is particularly interesting for me because of all the terms they're using here. Um, and highlighting some very, very important concepts which I think are relevant to the genocide question. And this um, problematic dimension, this notion of indigenous sovereignty. Now, for those of you who have not sort of, um, uh, don't know much about the Australian sort of past, it was unlike uh, New Zealand and Canada and the States, principally because in the colonization of Australia no treaties were signed. Okay? So there's this question of um, a problematic nature of settler state sovereignty. In other words, um, there is the argument, an important argument, um, that Australia has never um, legitimately constituted its sovereignty uh, through discussions and treaties with uh, indigenous peoples. So at the beginning of the reconciliation process in Australia, this notion of a treaty was uh, a very important part of the political mobilisation of indigenous groups and ultimately was watered down into this notion of a, a document of reconciliation which turned out to be a fairly grim poem ten years later. Um, and that's really pretty much all that really happened on the sovereignty question within the reconciliation period. But it's pertinent to the question of genocide because a lot of indigenous groups link these two together and say, okay, until we actually have recognised sovereignty through uh, a discussion with the settler state whereby we have um, our land rights guaranteed but also political rights to uh, self-determination which underpin the question of sovereignty for them, then we will continue to be in a colonial and hence genocidal relationship. <coughs> so, again, these uh, classic photos you get from the tent embassy, and they change regularly, but they all tend to have the same sort of themes. Taking us then to the current issues that I address in the paper at length, and I certainly did in my book before that, um, the particular problems for indigenous groups based around um, the question of current dispossession have rather oddly focused, I found when I first came to this, 
uh, issue on this notion of native title. Now, as a sort of fairly naive human rights student early on, I always thought that indigenous native title land rights were a good thing. Um, now I'm not 100% sure um, that you couldn't characterise them simply as a bad thing. Uh, but again, this is another debate. Suffice to say, the importance for this particular quote um, was drawn to me by a number of indigenous groups um, who I went to to watch engaged in a native title court case. And what they were particularly concerned to highlight with this quote here was that in order to prove this, this notion of native title, in other words, in order to prove this notion of land rights in Australia, what they have to do is to prove that they have not only a, con um, a continuing connection to their land, but also that they can prove the, they still have laws and customs and conventions um, which can be traced back to um, pre-colonial times and haven't been, in a rather grotesque phrase, washed away by the tide of history. So, for them, what they're basically drawing attention to is the fact that these laws and customs are still in evidence, and yet they're not given equal weight by the settler state. They are merely used as a means by which indigenous peoples can prove that they are capable of, of um, proving native title in Australia. So, it highlights the fact that there are still continu uh, con uh, continuing traditional laws and customs and a continuing attachment to land uh, from certain groups. So, when the Native Title Act, which was the government's response to this, I mean, the government didn't have to legislate after the Native Title um, Mabo case, which that quote came from. It was originally um, an indigenous initiative. It was not part of the official reconciliation process, even though um, it appears to be, until you actually look into the reconciliation uh, legislation, land rights were not on the, on the table, as it were. Uh, they became part of the debates about reconciliation, largely because um, the government's hand was forced through, firstly, the interaction of this Mabo case with concerns from industry groups. So, in the end, the rights limitation dimension I draw attention to here comes about principally because of this notion of a veto. So, when indigenous groups claim native title, they can't actually veto um, future developments on their land. And that was principally enshrined in this legislation. In the discussions running up to the legislation, Paul Keating, the Prime Minister, said that Aboriginal people understood that a generalised veto was never on. And he said there was some doubt that even deserved a right of consultation or negotiation on their land, that is. So, one of the aspects of the native title that's been most problematic is, this, is the fact that it did not contain the ability, even if you've proved native title, to actually veto any further um, dispossessions. So, um, myself and a number of other people have referred to these colonial assumptions underpinning this native title act um, as essentially uh, involving, first of all, the assumption of legitimate settler state sovereignty, in that, for example, the burden of proof for native title resigns firmly with Aboriginal groups. They have to prove that they still live in accordance with the traditional laws and customs, and they are still in occupation. And, of course, an awful lot of Indigenous groups in Australia were simply removed from their land, so they're not any longer on their traditional land. So native title does not offer them a way to regain lost land, contrary to sort of popular belief. The Act also ignores the fact that Indigenous peoples were distinct political entities of land and sovereignty at the time of conquest, and many Indigenous nations still retain such status. Um, I've often rem reminded when I, when I read this about Henry Reynolds' important um, 
obvious observation that Australia has never been one nation. For him, it's important to remember that you know, um, there are many indigenous nations in Australia and that talking of Australia as the nation simply, uh, again, in, engages in a, a colonial set of assumptions. Indeed, in order to claim native title, indigenous peoples have to prove this traditional and continuing connection to land and the observable traditional laws and customs, and yet the laws themselves are not given any moral or political weight. So for these 93 groups that have nonetheless successfully managed to do this, um, there is the potential that all of those groups could in fact sign a treaty with the settler state and then embark on a post-colonial journey. Um, obviously that's not um, currently underway. Uh, one of my favourite quotes from uh, old Nugget Coombs, as he was called, suggests that it's not surprising that indigenous peoples around the world continue to deny the legitimacy of legislation and agreements which purport to recognise or grant them native title to land they believe has always been theirs. This is especially the case when a primary purpose has in fact been to validate early dispossessions and ensure that the remaining land continues to be subject to alienation by compulsion. What he's talking, to here, talking about here, this validation question, is that one of the main reasons why commercial lobby groups were particularly worried about native title is that there was the uh, very important piece of legislation called the Racial Discrimination Act, which is Australia's only racial discrimination legislation, which um, gave legislative effect to their international commitments, um, the UN Convention Against All Forms of Racial Discrimination. And um, obviously from that moment on, they have to treat people um, equally and consequently if some indigenous groups could prove native title on land that had previously then had a mining lease on it then there would be issues of compensation um, and the commercial lobby groups much in the manner of the current banking system managed to come up with this wonderful coup of getting the taxpayer to pay all compensation to indigenous groups and that was part of the lobbying around the native title act uh, I've written extensively about this in the book and um, it, it was probably one of the most fascinating pieces of research I did just looking at the media representations of native title as a crisis for the nation. All of Australia was going to shut down if they didn't extinguish native title. Um, it was also at times some of the most tedious research I've done principally because um, it was just the same thing regurgitated over and over and over again this um, issue of certainty for industry. Ultimately then you had a, a position whereby the Native Title Act really uh, guarantees then that uh, future developments will continue regardless of indigenous um, opposition. We then come to this second piece of legislation which has resulted in indigenous peoples using the term genocide. In the article I document a lot of um, examples where people use the genocide term or genocidal language to describe this fairly notorious intervention which was instigated by the Howard government. Uh, for those of you who have not looked at this intervention, uh, in a nutshell, you're looking at what I consider um, the UN have now called a discriminatory <laughs> package of changes to indigenous welfare provision, law enforcement, land tenure and basic freedoms. <clears throat> this was allegedly based on this report commissioned by the Northern Territory Government. And one of the things I do in the full paper is show how the land reforms were actually started before this, and it's the sort of classic uh, government trick of you know piggybacking on um, a report which everyone would obviously feel <coughs> um, it was important to respond to. But actually, if you look at the detail of, of um, what went along with you know fairly um, important 
reforms, but nonetheless, on the back of it, you had a significant amount of uh, continuing dispossession again, which seemed to have little to do with protecting children. <clears throat> now, the report actually concluded that the significant amount of um, sexual abuse of children occurring in the Northern Territory occurred largely because of the breakdown of indigenous cultural society as a consequence of colonial dispossession and the combined effects of poor health, alcohol and drug abuse, unemployment, poor education and housing, etc. But the Howard government's response took little notice of the breadth of these recommendations and basically engaged in these um, changes. First of all, as is often the case when you want to uh, legislate uh, allegedly for the benefit of indigenous people, you have to suspend the Racial Discrimination Act. Um, you know, it's strange that. Um, then you have to uh, engage in various aspects of justifications um, to argue that these things are in fact beneficial. So what they basically did was to connect the issue of child abuse with um, these aspects here. Bans on alcohol consumption. They then connected it uh, to some strange idea that you should compulsory acquire Aboriginal townships without compensation as somehow connected to improving the lives of children. Uh, removal of customary law and cultural practice considerations from uh, criminal proceedings. Four, the suspension of the permit system on indigenous land. Five, the quarantining of a portion of welfare payments to those who neglect their children. And then the abolition of community development employment projects. Um, so this in a nutshell is the broad sweep of uh, measures included under this intervention. And the UN uh, has now done a, a detailed report that looks at the discriminatory dimensions of all of these issues. Uh, and whilst it said that you know, some of them um, could arguably be seen as uh, for the benefit of taken as a whole, um, it is some way away from being um, a non-discriminatory piece of legislation and has asked the government to um, go back to the drawing board. But this is something it's done before. It did the same thing with the Native Title Act amendments that Howard government brought in. Uh, unfortunately, the government's just uh, continued to ignore the UN recommendations in that regard. Now... There have, those, there have been those indigenous um, activists who have drawn attention to this notion of energy security in connection with this intervention, and I, again, I draw them out further in the paper. But um, in researching this, I was quite, I mean, I knew that Australia was resource rich on, um, in terms of some particular important resources, but I, was no, I, I never had any real idea that there was this much uh, uranium in Australia, for example. So you're looking at 30% of the world's currently identified uranium reserves are on Northern Territory indigenous lands. And since last year, the number of exploration licenses in uranium has, uh, in the Northern Territory has in fact doubled. Um, and since Howard's intervention, nearly 80 companies um, are either actively exploring or have applied to explore in Australia. I then looked into this further and thought, okay, now, now what is the backdrop to the um, so-called land grab of the Northern Territory. Well, I mean, there are a number of people that were drawing attention to this. Um, it wasn't broadcast particularly uh, widely in Australia, but in 2007, the Howard government signed this US-led Global Nuclear Energy Partnership Initiative, which it's an amazing coup, really. Uh, we committed Australia to mine and enrich uranium and export it to other countries, and then this is the marvellous thing, to re-import the resultant radioactive waste and store it forevermore in the Australian desert, of course, on indigenous-owned um, lands. So for these indigenous peoples who are going to be affected by this, um, the land grab in the Northern Territory for them has very little to do with child sexual abuse 
but everything to do with open slather uranium mining, and they fear that the Northern Territory is about to be turned into a global nuclear waste dump. As one activist thinking about this um, Little Children of Sacred report put it, uh, the radioactive elements leak and leach into the underground water systems, the water and food will become contaminated for hundreds of thousands of years, thus inducing epidemics of cancer, particularly in children, and genetic diseases for the rest of time. This is child abuse. Um, rather a uh, grim prediction, but one which uh, may actually um, happen. So, to sort of sum up then in the next few slides, the issue of genocide and current uh, indigenous experience, I think it's important to um, draw attention to these two issues that are nonetheless um, still going on in Australia. Assimilationist drives continue, dispossession continues. Um, the Australian state has had a history of preventing the present, uh, preservation of indigenous groups as culturally distinct people through continued dispossession of land um, and thinly veiled cultural assimilation drives. Now for Lemkin, uh, another point I point out in the, um, in, the, in the full paper is that forced assimilation was genocide. Okay? Um, he distinguished between cultural change and cultural genocide based on this notion of coercion and force. Okay? He didn't have, um, as some people suggested, an overly static view of culture. He was aware that cultures change, um, they're fluid, etc. But for him the important thing was um, choice. Okay? So in other words, where there is forcible assimilation, where people are forced to lose their cultural distinctiveness, this was a, a genocidal practice. And that comes out in his unpublished work. So, you know, it isn't just simply the case that you know, assimilation um, can be done for good reasons, etc. It's a question of whether there is consent involved or not. So through this continued dispossession then and assimilationist drives, in recent times I suggest that it continues somewhat perversely through these land rights initiatives, principally because they've been shaped by commercial groups, um, ensuring indigenous peoples can't resist future development on their land, um, in my book, I look at the assimilationist dimensions of reconciliation, one of which was this construction of one nation that okay, was integral to Australia's reconciliation process, um, which seemed sort of like a warm and fuzzy, inclusive dimension, but in many respects, you know, for, for a council for reconciliation, which was set up allegedly to deal with the injustice of colonial dispossession, it was a bizarre thing. Um, so I document that um, in some detail in the book. But there's also now this increasingly worrying issue of a drive to urbanise um, indigenous peoples. Now Australia is the most urbanised country in the world, um, so indigenous peoples now who live in um, outback stations are now having their funding cut um, to encourage them to move to what they call territory growth towns. Um, and you know you will find in the literature around this you know coercively assimilationist language again it's for their own good is to encourage economic development you know which a lot of people might well um, appreciate but the question is choice and the minute you remove funding um, then it becomes somewhat more coercive so in looking at the archives just to conclude then in Geneva I came across this um, well, a number of Lemkin's letters um, to Eleanor Roosevelt where he comes um, he comes at the question of genocide from a human rights perspective because one of the other interesting aspects of, of Lemkin's quest for the genocide convention in the UN is that initially he was very concerned that the human rights um, 
legislation that was going through at the time, the human rights conventions, etc., and declarations were going to be problematic for the genocide question. He was worried that um, protection of minorities, etc., would fall outside the remit of genocide, which ultimately happened. Um, so, in the letters I uncovered, he was very, very concerned to link genocide with human rights. Um, so as to not to see the protection of minorities and indigenous peoples falling outside of his concept. So he said that genocide as a concept provides for protection of the minimum of basic human rights of members of those groups which are under a constant attack throughout history. And he goes on a number of other letters to look at um, the problems for indigenous peoples and minorities. So he's particularly concerned that um, genocide wouldn't be watered down at this stage. So um, the reason I point this out is that virtually all of the recent pieces of legislation in Australia, which some people suggest are you know, um, new moves to um, decolonise, etc., and are seen as furthering indigenous rights, um, nonetheless breach many international laws, especially the racial discrimination one, which the UN has pointed out a number of times. They're also completely at odds with a number of key articles in the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples. Firstly, uh, the right to self-determination, and secondly, this notion of free prior informed consent. There is very little consent and um, uh, discussion involved in any of these um, pieces of uh, legislation that we've looked at. What the government tends to do as a sort of um, popular tactic is to get the approval of a small group of indigenous peoples and then say it has indigenous support. That's what the government did with uh, the Native Title Act. Um, with the intervention, they didn't even go that far. They've subsequently suggested that um, some consultations have met with approval, but in the in the full paper, I detail um, you know, literally the work of hundreds of people have come together under this um, term, the prescribed area, People's Alliance, voicing their opposition to the uh, enforced continued intervention. So essentially then, is, I'm arguing that it's contrary to a number of important human rights principles and also that it is entirely in keeping with Lemkin's conception of genocide. So ultimately, at the end of the paper, I conclude that um, you could legitimately argue that there is a continuing set of genocides in Australia. Not one genocide, principally because indigenous peoples are not this homogenised block. They all have different cultural identity depending on their national groupings, etc. But I think it is conceptually accurate and empirically accurate to um, say that genocide is continuing for a number of indigenous groups, by no means all of them, but at least for a number. Okay, thank you for listening. Brilliant. Thanks, David.